name is Ken Lyon. I am privileged to be with you for the next uh, few Sundays during the month of June while Lowell is away on a renewal leave. And typical Lowell, uh, Lowell, he texted me last night wishing me well and praying that it was going to be a wonderful day in worship. And I texted him back to, you know, tend to his own soul, his own physical well-being and his relationships. To just let it go and let God do for him and with him what God wants to do in this time away. Because this is an incredible congregation and you are one of the most vital congregations in our entire annual conference. In my opinion, not just a Methodist congregation, a, a congregation of faithful folks in the United States. Uh, would have a very hard time keeping up with your faithful expressions of ministry that honors God, serves people, and lifts the name of Jesus. During that last song, uh, I, I was so moved during the first service and during this service about the name of Jesus. And it just, just struck me that there are so many voices in our world, including our own. So here's what I want you to do. On the count of three, I want you to say your name out loud. One, two, three. Okay, now I know that you said that with great clarity, great distinctiveness, but because of all of this diversity and all of the competing voices, I got very few. Now on the count of three, in one voice, in unity, the name of our Savior, one, two, three. Clarity. If there's any time that our world needs the clarity of a unified voice, of a people whose character and witness and voice all are aligned, it's now. So thank you for being a part of that holy mission that God has given Crossroads United Methodist Church. Last night I had a wonderful experience, though a poignant experience, I went to our 50th high school reunion. Man, that was hard to say. Of course, I graduated when I was two. 50 years since we graduated high school. Now, it's, it's obvious that through the years, some of these folks have developed really bad habits. Some of them have taken up fibbing. I knew that because they would come up and say, you haven't changed a bit since high school. You know that's not true. We had such a good time telling stories, uh, just reconnecting with folks, some of whom we had not seen for over 40 years or so, and we had some first-timers at that reunion that had never come before. But a particularly poignant time was when we read the names of those folks who had died, those both in... Uh, that had died since the last reunion and also those since we had graduated. It was a sobering moment. You look around and you see these people that you cared for so deeply that you had so much fun with that were pivotal in your developmental relationships at that time. And now some of them are gone. And it just reinforces that however long we live, life is an eye's blink in relationship to eternity. Life is short. So then it behooves us to think about if I have X amount of days, and God only knows how many days, if I have X amount of days, how do I live those in a way that honor God, fulfill my my purpose, and the way God has crafted me? And so over these next four weekends, we're going to be talking about that, and primarily we're going to be talking about 
four major challenges that can derail us, that can take us off course and can render us ineffective and cause us to fail to reach our potential as the people God calls us to be, both individually and as a church. And I'm going to start by sharing a passage of Scripture with you from uh, Colossians. We're going to put it up on the screen. Now, these are the words of the Apostle Paul. Let's read them together. And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Did you catch that? He's in chains. That means he's in, yeah, he's in prison. He's in jail. Now, the remarkable thing about Paul is he is, he is praying for the courage, even in the midst of these circumstances, to be bold. Now, think about that a minute. What would you be praying for if you found yourself in jail? I, uh, I'd be praying for quick release. I'd be praying for security and for safety, for somehow to be set free of all this. Paul instead is praying for the opportunity to get in even more trouble. Even though now's the time where you ought to kind of play it cool, keep a low profile, don't antagonize anybody. Not Paul. He wants to take a risk. I wish I was more like the Apostle Paul. But I am kind of risk-averse. And I don't think I'm alone in that. I think a great many of us are risk-averse. We have in our business world, our workplaces, we have risk management departments. In our personal life, we try to manage risk by doing things like take out insurance to minimize potential financial loss through our property insurance, our car insurance, our life insurance, we are risk-averse. There's a guy in Hawaii who is a professor of philosophy. I just think that's, that's kind of fun. I mean, I could be philosophical if I lived in Hawaii and got to walk on the beach. Now, I'm I'm thinking, too, about those folks on the big island that are really in a terrible mess. You talk about risk management with that volcano that's going off. And, man, how they have to be wise and how they go about and manage the risk of living there or finding temporary shelter. This guy wrote a book some years ago. His name is Larry Loudon. And he wrote a book about risk. And there was one chapter in the book on dangerous things in our households. This is really fun. Listen to this. 460,000 people are injured every year by kitchen knives. 460,000 people. Wow. That is remarkable. 100,000 are injured by manual and power saws or other power equipment. 20 people are strangled to death on drapery cords. Now, here's the one that really got me. 4,000 people injure themselves with pillows. You got, now, I can understand you injuring somebody else or somebody injuring you in this world war of pillow fights and you get really whopped upside the head. But he says they injure themselves with their pillows. So are they like trying to fluff their pillow up and hit themselves in the jaw? 
I can't figure that out. So it gave me a fun thought. What is the most dangerous thing, in your opinion, in your house? And I want you to turn to your neighbor and tell them what you think it is. What's the most dangerous thing in your house? Okay, you got that done? Now, here's my, here's my proposition for you. What if, what if it's the easy chair? What if it's the easy chair with its promise of great comfort? In fact, the number one selling easy chair has a particular name. It is called a... Lazy boy. It is not called an up and atom boy. It is not called a high achiever boy. It is not called a worker boy. It is called a lazy boy. Now, to help me demonstrate with this, Zach, you were so kind to help me in the other service. Would you come up? Yes, thank you. Very good. And uh, I, I think he knows how to operate one of these. If you'll just take a seat and uh, get kind of comfortable. Yeah, just kind of push it back there. Oh, yeah, that's a peaceful looking, yeah. Now, when you're in the, when you're in the, the easy chair and you're, you're comfortable, you like to watch certain things on a what? On a TV. Now, talk about a hard life. When I was growing up, yeah, you had to get up out of the chair to change the channel. Yeah, how about that? But then somebody in, invented the remote control so you could change the channels the way God intended you to. All right. So, Zach, I'm going to give this to you. What's, uh, what's a program that you really enjoy? Um, I don't know. I don't watch a lot of TV, to be honest. You don't? Okay. All right. So you're not a binge watcher. Well, another thing we, we like to do when we're in that chair is eat a few snacks. Yes. And so we have these snacks and, you know, get some peanuts and... We're being really comfortable there. In fact, this is a particular kind of food. When you think of mashed potatoes and gravy, you think of comfort food. So we have our comfort food while we're in the comfortable chair. And after we've had those snacks, you're slower to give them back this time. Yeah, after we've had those snacks, we sometimes just push that easy chair back. Because we're getting so comfortable and the lights are going down and we have a little music as we drift off. Now, friends, does this look like a man who is ready at God's beck and call to jump out of that chair? To go to the front lines of ministry for God's purpose. I don't think so. It's too comfortable in the chair. Would you give thanks to God for Zach and for his good humor? Thank you. Thank you, Zach. The truth is, friends, I find myself often craving the comfort of the chair. And when it comes to my discipleship with Jesus, it is kind of a recurring thing. I get comfortable with the patterns that I am in. 
I get comfortable with the way I've always done things. I get comfortable with, with just my level of investment, my level of involvement, and the routineness. Even, even if it's no longer quite as satisfying as it used to be, because it's familiar. And therein lies, I think, a danger for each and every one of us. For the danger of this chair is not so much what I do in the chair, but what I don't do. It's about the, prayer, the prayers I never pray. It's about the relationships I never, I never start and grow and develop. It's about the people I never serve. It's about the resources that I never share. You see, I think, I think we are made for more. I think the witness of Scripture teaches us that God has something better, bigger, more meaningful than the life the chair offers to us. There is a real danger in too much comfort. When I was a boy, I loved raising animals. My grandmother raised a, a bunch of things. They retired and built a house, uh, and we built a house beside them. So from the time I was about eight until I was gone from home and married, I had my grandparents close by, and they were wonderful, wonderful, godly influences on me. And my grandmother wanted me to raise animals, so I raised rabbits, guinea pigs, I raised chickens, uh, quail, and pheasant. Now, we had, quote, setting hens, but she wanted me to learn how to use an incubator, and I, I mowed lawns during that time, and I saved my money up, and I actually put it in an envelope with a stamp and mailed it, because I couldn't figure out how to click on a computer that hadn't been invented yet. And I sent it to the mail order house, and they sent me back a styrofoam, about this big around, a styrofoam incubator. And my grandmother gave me six hen's eggs that were fertile eggs. I put them in there. I set the temperature. Every day I would check them. I would check the temperature. I would check the humidity. After they'd been in there about 10 days, I took the eggs out one by one, and I candled them. When you candle an egg, you have something that looks like a big tin can that on the one end has a light bulb, the other end has a hole where the light shines through. You hold the egg up against that hole, and you can see the little blood vessels and the developing chick. Well, I was so excited, I just couldn't wait for those things to hatch. And one day I peek in the window, and one of the eggs moved. It just kind of... And I watched it a crack appeared in the shell. And I kept watching, and finally, a little beak appeared outside the shell. I said, oh, great, man, here it comes. And then it stopped. It stopped. And I waited, and I waited, and I got worried. What if he's in trouble? What if he can't get out? And I took out that egg, and I began to peel away the shell, peeled away the shell, what happened to the chick? He died. My good intention, but misguided effort. Because I didn't realize that a part of the process of the chick growing strong and able to survive was that cycle of both rest, gaining strength, and struggle, effort. In our lives, as Christian disciples, there are rhythms that we need to honor in order to develop and refine and strengthen our character and our spiritual reserve. And that involves the appropriate rhythm of rest 
and struggle and renewal and work. The call of comfort, that rest, that routine, is a dangerous thing for us. In the Bible, we have several examples of this, and it's, it's called the, the, uh, the call narrative, the call narrative. And the call narrative has several different movements with these biblical characters. The first is God intervenes in a person's life while they're just doing their routine stuff. Often when it's just the regular way they're doing life. Moses is out tending his father-in-law's sheep, and I'm assuming he's got some of their, some of his in that mix. And, He sees a burning bush, and out of the burning bush comes this call of God interrupting his life, saying, I want you to go back to Egypt, and I want you to go toe-to-toe with the Pharaoh. I want you to deliver my people out of bondage. I want you to lead them out to where I will show you to a new promise of a new future. Or how about Mary, a young woman whose dreams are modest at best, She is betrothed to Joseph. And her great hope is that in that betrothal, their marriage will be consummated. They will have a family. They will have a good life together. Not a rich life, but a good life. And one day in her routine, as she goes to gather water from the well, an angel, a heavenly messenger, comes and says, Mary, you are greatly favored. God has chosen you to be a part of this redemptive plan. You are going to give birth to the Messiah. The interruption. There's a fellow in the Old Testament named Gideon. He is is just harvesting his crops, just doing what he needs to do. And this messenger comes to him and says, Hey, almighty warrior. Now here comes the second part of the movement in these call narratives. The person generally responds to God's intervention and invitation and beckoning with a, who, me? You got to be kidding. This is a bad idea. Moses comes up with five different excuses why this should not be happening. Mary, certainly certainly in, in her world, is overwhelmed by this. Who am I that I would be considered for such a thing? And there is Gideon in a wine press. You know what a wine press is? It's a place where you stomp the grapes. Well, he's hiding in the wine press because it has walls around it. And he's hiding from marauding bands of raiders. He's afraid will come and steal his crops that he is threshing there. And when the messenger says, Hail, mighty warrior, he says, Whoa, I am of the least of the tribes of Israel. And I am the least in my tribe. You cannot be talking about me. So God calls, people resist. Why? I think the motivation factor is one of fear. Sometimes it's fear of other people. What are other people going to think if I do this? Moses, Moses says, well, what if I go back and the people you're calling me to lead out of bondage don't believe me? What if they won't follow me? Think about Mary. I, I am betrothed, but I have, I have never been with a man. What are people going to say? Fear of other people. And then there is the fear of God. You remember the parable where the master gave the servants different amounts of talent. 
And the one who had been given X amount of talent here buried his in the ground because he said, I was afraid. I was afraid of you, master. Sometimes afraid of God that we won't measure up, that we won't be able to do the task, which leads to that third idea of inadequacy. Moses said, I stutter. I stutter. Who am I to lead? Friends, God says in this next movement, I know you're inadequate. I didn't call you because you were adequate. I didn't call you because you had all of the resources. I didn't call you even, even uh, because you're the perfect person for the job. I called you because in my wisdom, you were the person that I want to do this. And I will resource you. You see, your success, your effectiveness will not be based on your resources. It will be based on your reliance on me. Your reliance on me. And then the final movement is the person has a choice to make. It is an act of the will. Will they say yes? I don't know what the future is going to hold. Yes, I am inadequate. I don't know how this is going to unfold. I don't even know if it's going to go well because, friends, sometimes it didn't always go well. But in an act of faith, because I know you're calling me, I say yes. One of the curious things about Scripture is that it gives us this picture of Jesus who, the Scripture says, was tempted in every way that we are tempted. And that means to me that Jesus was also tempted by comfort. Do you remember over in Matthew, and it's also in some of the other Gospels, the baptism of Jesus, when he comes up out of the water, the, the heavens part, there's this divine affirmation that comes to him. You are my beloved. You are my beloved. But in Matthew it says, then the Spirit led, other translations say, drove him into the wilderness. Now the wilderness is always a symbol of both opportunity and danger. Opportunity and danger. So Jesus, with this great affirmation, goes into the wilderness and the adversary of his redemptive mission comes to him and says, I know you've got the power. I know who you are. You see, the adversary never, never cast doubt on who Jesus was or on his divine ability and power. What the adversary tries to do is to get Jesus to bump just a little off course, bump a little off course. You think about the missions that we have sent to the moon. If that mission is one degree off course, you miss the entire moon and you're lost forever. So it's not a frontal assault. It is a compromise. Just do this. Take the easy way. The first compromise, 40 days, Jesus is hungry. I know you have divine power, says the adversary. Here's what I want you to do. You have the power. Just turn these rocks into bread. Turn these stones into bread. You can fill your hunger. And by implication, he's saying, you can also become this economic Messiah. You can take the easy way. Use your power to do this. And people will follow you because their bellies are hungry. But Jesus knew. Filling their bellies as important as it is, and it is vital. Without the attention to the food for the soul is a compromise of comfort. And they would never grow and mature and become disciples, proclaiming good news that goes beyond 
the creature comforts of adequate food. Taking him up to a high place overlooking lands, the adversary says, I have authority over these lands, temporarily maybe, but I have authority over these lands, and I know that you want, to, you want people to follow you in all lands and all places, and I tell you what, I can make that easier for you. All you need to do is bow the knee to me. I mean, who's going to know? Who's going to know? I can make this happen for you. Take the easy way. And finally, to that pinnacle of the temple and says, you know, I know you can do miracles. I know that you have divine power. You can throw yourself off. And the adversary says, the scripture says, the adversary knows scripture quite well and can twist it and turn it to his advantage. He says, I know that his angels have been given charge over you. And they will keep you from harm. You fling yourself off the temple where everybody can see and they say, and then the angels will come and they'll just catch you before you dash your foot upon the stone. And they'll follow you. They'll follow you. That's the easy way, Jesus says. In fact, when his miracles became the overarching draw for people, he would leave, he would leave that area because he knew they were following him not for the truth of what he spoke, but for the miracle of, wow, gee whiz, look at that. A miracle a day is the only way they'll keep following. Jesus didn't choose the easy way. Even on the night before his crucifixion. Oh, he prayed. He prayed for release. If there is another way, if there is another way, let me find it. Let me find it. But if not... I still say yes to your way. Now, friends, the truth is, not many of us are going to call to go into the heat of battle somewhere in some some life-threatening moment. We're probably not putting a lot at risk in terms of our career. We're not going to be called upon to do that every day. But we are called to get out of the easy chair and to take a risk in some way as a faithful disciple. What I'm asked to do is going to be different, perhaps, than what you're asked to do. So don't look at somebody else and say, well, they're doing that. Maybe, maybe that's what I'm being called to do. But no, nope, no, nope, I can't do that. Be open and attentive to what God is calling you to do. Last night, one of the guys at that um, 50th, uh, 50th reunion uh, was telling me that um, he, he's a part of a a church where on a good Sunday there are 50 people, 50 people, small little church. And he said, you know, we've, we've come to the decision that we're not going to change the world. We're not going to be involved in the great big issues of our time. But we looked around and, and we said, we got land and we know how to do gardens. And so they took a five-acre plot of land and they plowed it and they started planting seeds And they take every year now tons of fresh vegetables, tons of fresh vegetables to the area, food pantries, and into areas where it's uh, it's a a food scarcity kind of place. And, And they just give it out. They just give it out to folks that are hungry. They couldn't do everything, but they could do that. 
Now, they could have stayed in their comfort chair. And they could have said, well, you know, I've reached the stage of life. I've done my part. And I could armchair quarterback. And I can tell you that that's just a waste of time. We did that 20 years ago. Didn't work then. Won't work now. Oh, that's just a waste of effort. That's just a waste of effort. I don't know what we're going to do about those people. But God still calls. And God says, I want you. What are you going to do about that? Big or little, great or small, there's something God has for you to do. Something that will get you out of that and into this. Would you pray with me? Oh, God, I don't know what you have in store for the folks of this wonderful congregation. But I do know, I do know that each and every person is known by you and that your intention toward them is good. You want life to be blessed, even though it may be hard and may be challenging. You want life to be blessed. But the pathway of blessing is not found in the comfort of the easy chair. It's found in the midst of the journey with you. So may we, in these coming moments, have a little honest conversation. Be open to your call. (laughs) Be realistic about our excuses and call them for what they are. And then trust in your provision and your divine power that we may have the courage to say yes yes life is just too short to live any other way amen